1: Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor for The Economist, and this is Money Talks. This week, we'll be examining what the British economy needs to bounce back from the shock of Brexit.
2: Overall, the best thing for the economy now is to try and clarify what the relationship is in the future. How a unicorn made an ass out of tech investors.
3: The main lesson, of course, is that homes promised too much and really delivered far too little.
1: And how Lego is setting an example for
4: the builders of corporate headquarters in Europe. There's a difficult challenge to get the right talent, to get the engineers, the really high-skilled young people, especially if your headquarters are in the middle of rural Denmark. So,
1: by Wednesday night, Britain will have a new Prime Minister, Theresa May, and she has made her first priority clear.
3: The need, of course, to negotiate the best deal for Britain in leaving the EU and to forge a new role for ourselves in the world... Brexit means Brexit, and we are going to make a success of it. Yeah.
1: But with the pound still far below its level before the referendum and foreign investors looking leery, where to start cleaning up the mess from Britain's decision to leave the EU? Here to discuss this with me is Callum Williams, our British economics correspondent, who's been glued to the FTSE 250 ever since the referendum news broke. Callum, first of all, uh, before the referendum, uh, we at The Economist made pretty clear our view that the economy would suffer if Britain voted to leave. How much are the signs of that happening
2: already? Well, as everyone knows, there's the there's the um, stock markets which are, which are down. The FTSE 250 is the one to look at and, and sterling is down. Um, what we're starting to see now is evidence that the sort of real economy, so not financial markets, are slowing. And that's not from official data for which there's quite a long lag, but from more high-frequency indicators that you can scrape from websites and that sort of thing.
1: So so tell me a bit more about that. What what kind of indicators are we talking
2: about and, and what are they showing exactly? So for instance, one website that I often use for articles is a is a jobs listing website that has Roughly a million or so jobs uh, at any any given time. New job postings on that website have fallen by about a quarter since the since the referendum. So that's that's one indicator. In, in other places, the economy is is looking okay. I mean, consumer spending is is looking okay. Things like restaurant bookings are holding up fine. John Lewis sales are holding up fine. Th- that sort of thing. So it's not an altogether awful picture. But there are certainly very sort of dark spots if you look closely enough.
1: All right. So you mentioned hiring as one area where there's some indication that, that companies are holding back. The other thing that people keep talking about as a potential problem is uh, investment. Yes. Tell me a little bit
2: about that, what we know. So on investment, it's it's difficult. We have got some data on things like planning applications which both businesses and individuals will make. So it's not a perfect proxy, but it's a decent one. That seems to have fallen. Uh, we're not quite sure how much yet we're still doing the calculations, but it seems certainly to have fallen since the referendum, which is concerning. And then, of course, on top of that, you get all of the anecdotal stuff about you know foreign investors kind of deciding to put things on hold and, and, and businesses not building new factories and so forth.
1: OK, and so how long will it be before we get any kind of
2: official confirmation of what's happening in employment data, in GDP data and so on? So the employment data for July, so for this month, won't come out until about September, and then the GDP stuff won't come out until about October. And even then, it will be a pretty preliminary estimate that, that some people say doesn't mean an awful lot. Uh,
1: but banks, uh, other forecasters, they're still predicting pretty gloomy news, right? Absolutely, yeah,
2: yeah. So for 2017, the consensus uh, before the referendum was growth of, you know, in the region of two to two and a half percent. And now the consensus has gone, you know, just above zero. So there's been a really significant downgrade over the last couple of weeks.
1: And, and some people predicting a recession. Uh, and some
2: people, predict, Yeah, I mean, some people think the second half of this year will be a recession, which would mean, of course, that for the overall, year, the UK might not go into a recession, but it might be in technical recession for the second part of this year, and then a significantly slow growth or, or possibly a recession in the year after that.
1: So lots of different indicators that things are
2: heading south and, and might go a long way south. How bad do you think it might get? The consensus is, seems perfectly legitimate. My personal sense would be that it's probably biased upwards. For the reason that, for instance, the UK's brand abroad is looking pretty shaky now. The UK relies very heavily on its brand to sell things, film and TV and advice and consultancy all that sort of stuff. And of course, you can't really model that in a prediction of what's going to happen to economic growth. But I think that's actually really significant for the UK. The indications that we've got is that brand Britain, which the government's worked really hard to create over the last decade, is looking a little bit damaged. So probably I'd say the 0.4% or whatever the consensus is for 2017 might look a little bit optimistic, if anything. Oh dear.
1: Okay. And, and and what about our new prime minister just uh, starting the job or, or indeed the
2: Bank of England?
1: What could they do to try and and make uh, things not turn out so badly?
2: Well, it is also true to say that most of the predictions of what would happen in the event of Brexit also didn't account for the fact that there would be a policy response. So it didn't account for loosening monetary policy or fiscal policy. So Theresa May has kind of indicated a few times that she thinks that the current government's fiscal policy is wrong. It's too tight essentially, too austere. Uh, The government has this sort of fiscal target for making a budget surplus by 2020. And she's kind of suggested that that is not a good idea, which we would agree with. So on that level, she might well embrace a more expansionary sort of fiscal policy. On the other hand, Theresa May has sort of talked vaguely about infrastructure spending, but has put no uh, no flesh on, on those bones. So it's kind of hard to know what she stands for, but if anything, it's going to be a loosening of fiscal policy. So, so
1: with a little bit of loosening of monetary policy and a little bit of loosening of fiscal policy we might not be quite as badly off as you're predicting. That's
2: true. I think monetary policy can't really do that much. I mean, the banks and the consultancies love talking about what Carney will do next, what Carney's going to do on Thursday. I think cutting rates from 05 to 0.25% will probably do pretty much nothing. I mean, rate, lending rates in the UK are already really low. It's the demand for credit, not the supply of credit, which is the issue, as, as Carney keeps saying. And on fiscal policy, expansion of fiscal policy will be good. But on the other hand, the UK's deficit is already four or five percent of GDP. There's not a huge amount of room, certainly much less room than there was at the beginning of the financial crisis, to really start spending hard. So I think the room for manoeuvre there is pretty limited.
1: Presumably, in the long run, the thing that's really going to determine how the British economy does is is what kind of relationship yes. we end up
2: with with Europe. And, it, and exactly. we don't know anything about that yet. Exactly. When Article 50 is invoked, there'll be a sort of short-term sense of terror as that happens. But it would be overall the best thing for the economy now is just to sort of try and clarify what the relationship is in the future. Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Now, if you'd like to tweet us and let us know what you think about the state of the economy after Brexit, you can. We're at Economist Radio. So from one disaster to another, for months now, the headlines have been full of bad news from Theranos, a medical diagnostics company. I'm joined by Natasha Loder, our healthcare correspondent, who's been writing about Theranos' ups and downs. So, uh, Natasha, what's the latest?
3: Well, there's been a lot going on with this embattled diagnostics company, uh, the latest being that um, it's lost its licence to operate its laboratory in California, and its CEO, Elizabeth Holmes, has been barred from owning, operating, or even directing a laboratory for at least two years. So let me just recap Um, Theranos is a a diagnostics, a blood diagnostics company that was was for a long time hyped as the future of diagnostics, the idea being to take a droplet of blood and uh, to run hundreds of tests on this. Well, you know, October last year, uh, the Wall Street Journal drew attention to the question of whether the technology that the company had been developing actually worked. And subsequent to that, Uh, The company has run into a real heap of trouble, everything from problems being found at the operation of one of its laboratories, problems over whether its collecting device was approved by the FDA, it wasn't and should have been, and even an investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission as to whether the company misled its investors. On top of all this, there's now a stack of lawsuits piling up from customers over the flawed tests. And later this week, Holmes is going to have to answer questions from Congress.
1: So as you say, this was a very hyped company, a uh, biotech unicorn, as it were. Uh, we, we don't know the precise valuation since it's private, right? But but very much uh, um, esteemed by investors at a certain point. Is it now all over for Theranos? Is all that money lost, as it were?
3: At one stage, it was being valued at 9 billion uh, in the media, but that was a very speculative valuation. And nobody who I spoke to at the time who analyzes diagnostics industry actually believed that figure the question is what's next uh, for the company and is there any value left at one level people are lining up to say Holmes is finished. Now, it's certainly clear she can't run a laboratory uh, for the next two years, and she's in a heap of trouble. There's no question about that. Uh, But she has got one interesting option left open to her, which is to shut down the consumer testing side of her business and really continue on what they started out doing, which was to develop tests in the company. Of course, whether or not this is a viable option really depends on the extent to which the technology works, which is the open question we have here
1: Okay, but so some slim prospect that something might be salvaged from the company. But in in the meantime, what have we learned? What have investors learned? What have the regulators learned? What's the moral of this sad story?
3: Theranos is such a unique company, it's really hard to draw general conclusions. But there's some certainly some real standout issues, one of which in my mind is whether the regime for regulating tests in a laboratory is actually good enough. And the fact that it took so long for issues to be picked up and that it took quite a serious journalistic investigation to highlight them, I think should really flag up concerns for the regulators themselves and also the politicians. The main lesson, of course, is that Holmes promised too much and really delivered far too little.
1: Natasha Loder, thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much.
1: If you have any thoughts about Theranos or about unicorns in general, and you can't quite cram them into 140 characters, don't despair. There's email as well. You can reach us at radio at now, finally, we're joined by Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent who's based in Paris. Hello, Ed. Adam's been looking into the latest trend about headquarters of European companies. Adam, your, your first
4: experience of what we're talking about began with Lego, is that right? It did. I had a chat to Jürgen Vig Knudstop, the CEO of Lego, who has a good story to tell. The company's been doing very well in the last eight or nine years. It's been growing fast and so on. And they're building a swanky new headquarters in rural Denmark. And, and the plan, as you would expect with Lego, is to build a very attractive, well-designed, uh, open, uh, see-through, sort of playful sort of place for the for the workers to come to.
1: Sounds great. But but Lego's not the only company in Europe that's been building a nice, uh, shiny new
4: building. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, you look around the continent and Siemens has just opened a a rather swanky uh, new office in Munich. Uh, In that case, it's downtown in Munich inside some old buildings. But again, it's sort of all about shared spaces, collaboration and openness and creativity, breaking down hierarchies. So am I imagining things? These all sound like the headquarters of sort of very trendy Silicon Valley uh, uh, tech firms. Why would a, a European company want something like that? They need to attract the same sort of talent. They want to get the high-skilled workers in. They want to tell people that they're open to creativity. They're not as hierarchical as they used to be. And they're trying to send a message out with their buildings to say, actually, it's fun to work here. You can really be creative and achieve something. It's a bit like working at a tech firm. So you know, they're sending a message with these buildings that we're almost as fun to be at as to be at Facebook or Apple or someone like that.
1: And, and is there any evidence that the uh, message is, is reaching the intended destination? And presumably,
4: they're, they're quite expensive to build, so you, you'd want to be sure it would work. Yes, I, I don't know if there's any evidence that it really works yet. I think all of these companies know that there's a crunch, there's a difficult challenge to get the right talent, to get the engineers, the really high skilled young people, especially if your headquarters are in the middle of rural Denmark or out in the middle of uh, rural Germany. But there isn't a lot of proof yet that I think it works. It's as a, something of a fad and uh, I suppose the companies that are doing well feel it's just worth chucking the money at this and seeing if it happens. Right. So so there might be a bit of a a downside to shareholders,
1: maybe spending money without any purpose. But is there any downside for the workers? I mean, it must be lovely to be in one of these wonderful new buildings.
4: Well, you're right. I mean, on the one hand, having a a mini golf course on the roof of your headquarters or having a sports facility and some playrooms must must be great. And no doubt there are some workers who love that. My suspicion, my sceptical view of it is that actually the downside is that workers are somewhat encouraged to live their lives in these buildings not to go home but to spend you know every waking hour in effect at work they get almost trapped in these buildings and don't want to leave aha the the european headquarters honey trap all right
1: (laughs) adam roberts uh, thank you very much thank you very much that's it for money talks this week thanks for joining us in london this is the economist
0: traffic jams tailgating